Hi there. Thanks for joining me. This is Della Rucker of the Wise Economy Workshop, and I'm delighted to have you with me today for this Planner's Web podcast. We're going to be speaking with Bobby Fay. Bobby is the story sharing leader for an organization called CDF. CDF bills itself as a collective action initiative. They're based in Clarkston, Georgia. Now, Clarkston is a suburb of Atlanta, but it is a pretty unique suburb, and I'll let Bobby tell you more about that. But mostly, Bobby today is going to tell us about an initiative within this community to pull together an unbelievably broad cross-section of the community to not just give ideas, not just give feedback, but to really be involved in decision-making and priority-setting for the community. And she's going to tell us about how that initiative also gave them a very meaningful ownership of how they could make change, positive change within their community happen. Toward the end, you'll hear us also discuss some issues relating to technology and technology applications to a diverse and uh, multifaceted community like Clarkston. So I hope you enjoy. If you have questions or comments, please feel free to send them to Planners Web. If you're interested in more podcasts, you can follow me at Della Rucker on Twitter. It's Della Rucker all run together or follow wiseeconomy.com. Thanks again and thank you for supporting Planners Web. So Bobby, thank you again so much for taking the time to talk today. Um, to start out, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, yourself and about CDF? Um, one of the things that has struck me is that it's a pretty interesting organization working in, by U.S. standards, a very interesting uh, context. Definitely. Um, my background has been kind of all over the shop as far as I've been in corporate communications and marketing and then always kind of had my heart back here in Atlanta and did a lot of work with international education. And through my work with international education in Atlanta, found out about Clarkston and the community of Clarkston. Hmm. Um, Clarkston has been a resettlement area, designated resettlement area, for I think since the mid-'80s. There's an estimated... 60 to 80,000, depending on which numbers, um, 60 to 80,000 refugees who have been resettled through Clarkston. It was picked back then, urban blight, lots of um, uh, housing, available housing, as well as being close to public transportation. And this is a suburb of Atlanta. Yes, it is really close to Atlanta, um, about nine miles due east of Atlanta. And so Literally, you can be in Atlanta in the heart of a city, you know, that held the Olympics in 96, has a very robust international economy, but much cosmopolitan um, from that perspective. And then you go due, due east, and you're in this community that um, actually I think Time Magazine designated uh, comment Clarkston was the most diverse square mile in the United States. Hmm. So we have uh, over 60 different languages spoken, um, people from 
all over the world have, have been resettled here. And many have moved, moved through, and then some people have stayed and put their roots, roots down in Clarkston. So when you said 60 to 80,000 people have come through the, through the community that is since the mid-'80s, and that's people who were, you know, for whatever reason, were initially resettled to Clarkston and then moved out from there in, in at least some cases – to other places. What's the current population of the city? Well, there's there's the city of Clarkston, and then there's the greater zip code. So a lot of people, the Clarkston area is around 22,000 people. Okay. And the actual city of Clarkston is 7,200 around that. Okay. So how did, can you tell us a little bit about uh, CDF and about how you, how the organization got started, and, and give us a little bit of a sense of, of the scope of, of the mission. Sure. CDF was founded um, by some folks who were, you know, they've, they've done a lot of philanthropy work and a lot of, a lot of work throughout the Atlanta area. And one of the people specifically, Bill Moon, had helped found a school, a charter school, the International Community School. And the mission of the International Community School was half refugees, half U.S. born. Hmm. So really focused around building a sense of community. And through his work there, he realized there was a lot of of needs of parents and a lot of um, needs of the whole community. So not just education. Education is a huge part of community health, but he saw this greater need. And so he looked at you know, how do we start working in Clarkston? How do we work with the greater community? Because parent involvement is important in education, et cetera. And so he really wanted, he started talking with some folks, and, and he, along with um, one of our, our, our founding board members, John Whitehead, started having this conversation of, is there an organization that can play a role in really helping this this community with so many different backgrounds kind of, you know, start to work through itself and, and start to, um, you know, really, really come into its own. And so CDF was founded from that. And from there, our, our executive director had done a lot of work with another organization in doing community engagement and community development and really focusing on the asset-based community development model, so looking at the gifts and talents that people have in the community and not always looking to the outside for the solutions. And so Jeremy Lewis was hired on as our executive director, as the founding executive director or first executive director, and he has been with, us, has been with CDS since. And so from there, really looking at this model of this very unique background of, of a place, because while... Clarkston has all of this diversity, there's still, the population is 42% foreign born. So you Mm -hmm. have, you know, uh, 42%, I'm trying to do my math. Um, So you have another 48% that are not um, foreign born, 58%, sorry. Mm -hmm. So 58% are from the U.S. And so they have their history, and they call this place home. So how do you get all those groups starting to work together to make Clarkston the home that they want it to be? Great. So what other kinds of we'll, – we'll talk about the, uh, the initiative that you wrote about. Um, but, but before we get into that, can we talk a little bit about sort of the broader range of, of what uh, the Collective Action Initiative, CDF, does in Clarkston. So what kinds of 
activities, what's, what's the scope of the activity that this organization is taking on? We, we work primarily on, um, we, we facilitate the community's ability to, to make its own dreams come to life. So we really look at being a connector and a listener for what the community wants to do. We also focus, um, so we kind of have three areas that we work on. Our, our primary focus is resident engagement, so getting the residents engaged and having them, you know, building the capacity from within. Uh, we there's lots of research out there, you know, if, if the community wants something to happen, they're going to be more likely to sustain it over time. And that was a big piece of how we looked at our work and saying, how, how can we make sure that someday this is owned by its residents, the residents are wanting it to continue happening. It's not a bunch of people from the outside telling folks what to do. So we do capacity building. We have a community academy that we do, which is actually in conjunction with the University of Missouri's um, community development academy that they have, so we, we use their curriculum. And that's a five-day course, and it, it works on, you know, how do you look at engaging your, your fellow residents? How do you look at facilitating meetings? How do you look at doing um, different aspects of systems change and understanding local governments and understanding the systems and how they all work? So really getting the residents to have this deeper understanding of how they can be a part of the change they want to see in their community. So there's the capacity building piece. We also do a lot of organizational support. And that's from the perspective of there are organizations, there's a lot of great organizations that are already working in Clarkston. So how do we get them working together um, in the most efficient manner? How do we get them really focusing in on um, you know, maximizing all the different things that they all do well. And then there's new organizations. There's organizations that want to get started, and mm -hmm. they may need some help. How do we build a strategy, strategic plan, or who should we talk to? And, and so we, we act a lot as a connector in saying, oh, well, did you know so-and-so is doing this? You should give this person a call. And, and really connecting those folks so that hopefully there's not a lot of duplication. Um, we have some instances where three or four different groups have had the same idea, but they didn't know the other person had the idea. And so our role in that has said, you need to call you know, person A, group A, you need to call group B and get group C in the room because you're all talking about the same thing. So literally um, uh, avoiding duplication of, of some projects. And so you're doing that function particularly, you're doing um, just basically as a, you know, I guess Malcolm Gladwell would call it a maven. You're 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 basically the the staff of CD. I'm sorry, the the staff of the organization of CDF is out there talking and meeting and talking and meeting. And when you happen to hear that one thing's going on, you can say, "Oh, hey, you know, so and so is working on this as well. Why don't you guys get together?" Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. Exactly. Now you did the 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 thing that you wrote about and that was was pretty interesting was this initiative to basically do some priority setting and then actually put some money um, and and have community driven funding decisions behind these priorities. So as you say in the article, you had 92 people which in a town of, you said, 7,200 for the city proper? Yes. I mean, that's a, that's a fairly decent turnout. You've got 10 different languages, 
being spoken there and you ha and and you go into this small group process to try to do some priority setting and there's this group discussion and then there's a um I don't want to repeat what you wrote in the article but then there's a um you know, a priority setting process where each person gets to identify their priorities and they're combined. And for people who do public engagement in the in-person context, and a lot of our readers do in-person and online, it still looks like a pretty, pretty familiar context. But you're doing it with people speaking 10 different languages. So just logistically, how did you pull this small group process? How did you make this work when you needed to have translators and, you know, you needed to, presumably you were trying to mix people by, you know, not not everybody who speaks one language at one table, or maybe I shouldn't assume that. How did you pull the, the small group process? Well, I mean, we've, the, the actual getting everybody together is, is nothing new for us. We've been doing um, community-wide, large community conversations since 2010. And we do that from a visioning perspective of what do you want to see and just getting folks talking and sharing common visions as a way of, of kind of building connection and building community. And so the, the community trust piece was really, you know, knowing your community, knowing your neighborhood, knowing who, who are the groups that we think are going to show up. Um, we are very fortunate to have a diverse community engagement team who goes out and, and is always meeting and talking with people, being those mavens that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So from the perspective of, you know, we, we did a business accelerator course and we're fortunate enough to have someone go through the business accelerator that we, we partnered with Village Capital and Emory University and um, Social Enterprise at Goizueta's group. And she went through and she wanted to start a translation company. So it was one of those, oh, well, here's somebody who's been through a capacity building program and she does translation. So we brought her in and said, hey, you know, here's what we think is going to happen. And we had translators for five different languages on site and then the, the additional languages showed up and she picked up the phone and was ready to get her translators in there that night, oh. which, was, which was pretty amazing to watch. Um, but it's having other people like that that have the connections that we need. Um, Did, were the, just from a technical standpoint, so some of the translators, some of the languages, you had a translator physically in the room, and the others, how did the ones, when she had to pick up the phone, was she then connecting to somebody who is in a remote location, or did she, was she able to just call somebody and say, hey, get on down here, I need help? Yes, hey, get on down here. We need help. So she, she knew the folks. Oh, um, okay. And, and to your question about the small groups with the, as far as the processing, I mean, we did a, a general randomization process so that when folks came in, they signed in, and then they went to a randomization table and got their group assignment. Mm -hmm. We knew that there would be some larger groups. Our hope was to divide them up as much as possible. So really, the translators helped sign them in and we knew what level of English they might be comfortable in. So if we had someone who spoke English and a, um, their primary language but was comfortable going between the two, we might pair them with someone else who spoke their language but wasn't comfortable in English so that they could kind of act as a conduit. Because to your point earlier, we want to have as much diversity in the groups. If we just put them into their own language group, you can tend to have this, this isolation still happen. And the purpose of this is really cross-pollinating ideas. And so 
through the randomization, we had one group that was an all-English group, but then we had another group that was literally the small group of 10 people was operating in four different languages. Um, so they... Wow, you had 10 people speaking four different languages. Yes. And trying to have a conversation between them. I mean, that's that's staggering. Yes, yes. But amazing to watch in and of itself because then you, you start to understand and see people um, take more time and pause and, and really start to appreciate the process of going back and forth in these different languages. Okay. So, yes, four different languages. But they did it. We did it. Wow. Wow. Absolutely. Now, then there then there was this interesting process. Um, and this was the part, you know, from a, from a logistical standpoint, I, I was really curious about how you pulled off this this process with, you know, so many moving linguistic parts, as it were. But then they went into a process of, okay, so people identified what their priorities were. And the priorities were by topic, so it was things like education, safety, health care, et cetera. Then they went into a process of selecting trustees. And the trustees yes. were people from what I understand, from the community, who were basically sort of given responsibility by the other participants to go and figure out how to get this done with the pot of money that we have to work with. So we'll talk about the pot of money in a second, but how did that, where did that trustee idea come from and 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 how in this very complex environment did did people manage to select the trustees? Well, the, so the trustee concept itself came from a lot of research, honestly. Um, we, looking at participatory democracy, so not, you know, I, I think what's been fascinating for me in this role is understanding that what a lot of us in the U.S. consider democracy from the U.S. perspective is actually a republic. So it's not quite a democracy where everybody has one voice, has, has a voice. We elect a, a person to, to kind of carry that voice for us. And so the participatory democracy was really a model for us. How do we make sure every person has a voice, especially in a community where a lot of these, um, a lot of the people who are refugees they can't even start to think about becoming a citizen until they've been here for five years. So they're here, and they have no elected official. So their voice is, is heard in a different way. And so how do we, how do we give them um, equal footing? So participatory democracy was a really important piece. And so we started looking at consensus-based decision-making. And how do you get everybody in a room to kind of come to consensus, which is not necessarily agreement, as, as you probably know, but really saying, I'm okay, I have no reason not to let this move forward. That's so a good, looking, good definition of that. <laughs> it was a really challenging one because people looked when we first proposed, the, the idea was first proposed, people said there's no way this can work in this community. You know, there's no, we can't even get consensus at our dinner table with five people. And I think once we were able to explain that the consensus the way I just did, it helps people understand. <laughs> I like so that. We, we really went through pure consensus can take days and months, and we looked at models all over the world because we have the world kind of here in Clarkston. So how do we look at 
creating, um, having a model of of governance, or not even true governance, because it's not government related. But how do we work? How do we work together as a group in a model that that's, that that groups are doing all over the world? And so, consensus-based, kind of community-based decision making really, really came to the top. And so, the whole concept of, of having trustees and having people who are in empowered by the people, you know, where the power of the people have entrusted this this to them really became um, kind of evident through our research. And so, yeah, the idea of the trustees came from there. And then our hope was that it really was put back to the residents of you can do this. You 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 have the ability within you, within your group of people to do this, and, and it's always, I think it's it's easy for any community to say, somebody else can do it, somebody else can take care of this. And the hope was that they would look around their circle after they discussed their priorities and shared their passion about this priority. So the trustee selection came after the prioritization. So people have really been able to have a voice and say, this is why I'm passionate about this. So each group of 10 um, actually was asked to come up with two trustees. And we did that, that was based on the perspective of if we had 10 people show up, we would only have two trustees. It was proportionate mm -hmm. to the number of people who came, who arrived that night. So from the perspective of the trustees, our goal was that everybody in the room that night was residents. And this was really the first time we had said, only residents get to really people who live here get to make this, this decision about what the priority is. But we respect the fact that there are people outside who are experts outside of the community who, these, who people in the community may trust. So the hope was that at least one of the trustees would be a resident from the group and another trustee could be from outside the group. Okay. So, so it was actually interesting because we thought, oh, you know, we, we we went through all different scenarios, lots of planning, you know, lots of meetings as a team, going, well, what if, what if, what if, what if, and the the group, the folks actually, you know, were one group had wanted to nominate four people from the group. People were that excited and that eager to raise their hand and say, I want to be part of this. Uh, you know, my favorite part of it is we have three teenagers who are trustees, awesome. who, um, who we, we decided 16 and over was kind of the cutoff and not the traditional 18. And so we have three teenagers who said, we live in this community. We want to talk about education because education was the priority that the, the group selected. Awesome. Awesome. Wow. And so what did you do with the, the group that wanted to nominate four people? Did you say, sorry, guys, we really got to limit it to two or – Yes, I mean, okay. we, it wasn't it wasn't really fair necessarily to the other groups, and we yeah. said, you know, that's why you, we we have this this group set of um, you know a process in place, and so went through like here are the expectations, and here are the dates that people actually need, and and that people went, oh well, you know, and, and maybe um, you guys can talk it out, and then we decided actually they all still wanted to do it, and we had talked about this was a what if that the, the staff worked through was what if there are more names, so they just threw them in a hat, threw the names in a hat, and drew out who the two people were. Really? Okay. Yeah. Cool. We went old school. <laughs> but 
Well, the, the, the intriguing thing is how much forethought you put into this to be prepared for that eventuality. Because, you know, obviously when you're doing any kind of public engagement, stuff happens. And stuff often happens that you, you know, wasn't according to the, the game plan. Um, but, but clearly you folks put in a lot of thought in order to be able to be prepared to go at that route if you needed to. So. I, I think most group had more what-if scenarios. I think our our rules of engagement, our rules of for the process book was much shorter than the what-if book. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Now, in the, in the couple of minutes we've got left, uh, let me ask you about um, the funding, because the, the, the responsibility of the trustees is to brainstorm some ideas, but then they actually get a little bit of money to go to work on that. So it's not a giant pot of money, according to the article. You've got about fifty thousand in place now, and you're you're still looking for, um, for, for additional donations. Do you have any sense yet of? And I, I know the trustees don't meet until next month, but do you have any sense yet of of what the trustees might be able to get done with the money that's likely to be available? We don't, and that's the beauty of the process. Um, the next meeting is September 22nd, and members from the community and members who are interested in the community, so this, is, this opens back up beyond residents, can come and share their ideas for projects. So the trustees are going to host um, two to three meetings that actually is just kind of a sharing project ideas and looking at it, and of course feasibility is a big one now mm -hmm. because it, there is that amount in question, so, but so we don't. We this is truly whatever happens, the community is going to decide. Wow, very cool. Let me ask you about just one other element. What you've described is an extraordinary is a is a very very high touch kind of approach. You know, you have you have people who are, you know who are are deeply embedded in the community. You clearly deeply understand the people and the populations that you're dealing with enough to be able to, you know, facilitate facilitate this, you know, complex just logistically the translation process is still amazing to me. I've I've done bilingual meetings before and, and that's hard enough to do all those languages. <laughs> Holy macaroni. And and I realize that there was probably an intention to keep it sort of low tech. But are there ways in which you could imagine or, gee, I wish we'd had some sort of a technology, some sort of a, a web-based tool or an application or a something that would be beneficial to, to either this specific project or to your work in general? Um, I think a lot of our challenge, and we've talked about technology um, ad nauseum here. You know, it's always that, do we do this or do we do that? I mean, one of the things that I'm actually meeting with someone today is to talk about texting. You know, when you've got 42% of the population that is foreign-born, and, and majority of those are ref people, folks who came from refugee camps, you know, we, we have a an English reading level of that the, is not necessarily where they can access a lot of things online even if they can even if they have access to a computer they're they're not necessarily on in an online space 
And so we've had to really take that into consideration. When we first proposed this, one woman said, oh, if we can have a brainstorming place for projects, et cetera, online. And we thought, that sounds great, but what about the people who aren't there? And if we have it for one group, are we continuing this? Uh, are, do, does that create further barriers between the groups who are online and the groups who aren't? So that technology was a big consideration. Um, you know, our, our biggest thing was the night of was literally prioritizing. We used a prioritization grid that was um, from someone who we know who works in Nepal, and so she actually introduced that when we when we said, okay, we can't do pure consensus because we have a time constraint. How do we do this? And so people literally ranked things on paper. People scored them, and then all the scores came to myself and another person, and we entered them into an Excel sheet. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it would have been great if we could have even had iPads where people could have had ranked them, but not necessarily looking at, you know, if, if, if we can be more picture-driven from a language perspective, and how do we communicate with folks who don't have um, full literacy in English yet? I mean, they're working towards it, but that doesn't mean that their voice and their opinion and their life experience doesn't mm -hmm. matter. So how do we start to create technology that is inclusive um, of, all those, of all populations? That's that's an excellent, excellent observation. And it's one that, you know, I've heard from a variety of communities through the last few years, particularly as not just in the U.S., but in many countries. You know, we have this, this increasing diversity of population, and and often the the primary language of the area is not available to everybody at a level that they're fluent in. And even if I am fluent in reading a language, I may not be comfortable in speaking in that language or speaking publicly in that language. If I'm native-born and I have a speech impediment, I've got the same barrier as if I didn't speak the language at all. So, so the need, the ability to move to more of a visual process and more, more of a language a less language-dependent process, I, I do think it's something that that we're seeing become more and more important. And, and it's starting to evolve. And obviously, need for language will never go away. But uh, it's interesting to hear you bring that up within this, this process. So yeah, very cool. Yeah. The, the website for the organization is cdf, cdfaction.org. And there's a great deal of information there about the organization and the approach and the community. And it's a pretty interesting read. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell this audience about, um, you know, other things they should be thinking about or, or concerns that, that, you know, you wish somebody would figure out how to solve or things you think they should be aware of? I think the biggest thing for me that I've had as a, as a huge learning curve is, is about meeting people where they are and really understanding that everybody has something they bring to the table. And, you know, speaking of the language issue that we just talked about, to me that is something that people see as a barrier so much. And if we can move around that and really see all the gifts and talents that each person brings to the table, I, I'm fascinated at the things that I have learned from the people I have met here in this community. It is staggering, and it, it it's it's absolutely amazing. And so if we can solve how to how to get around these education barriers and um, language barriers that we kind of set up as a, as a 
is a value structure for the way we value people and really look at the amazing experiences that people have. It's been staggering for me. Awesome. Yeah, it puts a, it puts a whole new uh, twist on the idea of asset-based community development when you look at it that way. It really does. So, awesome. Well, thank you very much, Bobby, for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You're welcome.